From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Hearing a diagnosis that you have cancer or other chronic disease can be overwhelming, not just physically and emotionally, but also financially. It's called financial toxicity. You know, in reality, it's probably an experience that most Coloradoans have had either themselves or that they have known someone close to them. We'll explore how the state hopes to treat financial toxicity. We don't want people to have to choose, you know, whether they're going to be able to put food on the table or take care of their medical exams and labs and, you know, different things like that. And what we find, sadly, is this disproportionately affects people of color. Then a recent missile test to destroy one of Russia's own satellites raises new questions about safety in space and the military's place in orbit. We'll get some context about the concern. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel near Glenwood Springs. A diagnosis of a chronic disease can be overwhelming, not just emotionally and physically, but also financially. Studies show one of the top causes of stress for oncology patients is being able to pay for treatment. It's called financial toxicity. The state of Colorado is working to launch a $300,000 pilot program to address this. Lieutenant Governor Diane Primavera is leading the charge. Lieutenant Governor, welcome to Colorado Matters. Well, thank you, Nathan. It's good to be here. This type of program, one that deals with financial toxicity and chronic illness, it's very dear to you. Why is that? Well, uh, for one thing, I also am a cancer survivor. Um, I've had I've been diagnosed with four different uh, kinds of cancer, and uh, it's not an experience wow. that I would wish on anybody. And, uh, you know, just uh, hearing those words that you have cancer, you know, can really bring a person uh, to their knees. So, you know, when I was diagnosed, um, I was told I wouldn't have five years to live. I had a three-year-old at the time and a five-year-old at the time. And, you know, I couldn't imagine leaving them to someone else uh, to raise. So, just those stressors alone, I think, can be really crippling. Is it safe to say that the thought of beating cancer and not paying for the treatments was all you could think about, I'm assuming? That's exactly right. You know, all, all I could focus on was getting well. You know, I I wound up, uh, you know, not working at the time. And, you know, I, I kept thinking to myself, you know, am I ever going to be able to work again? Am I ever going to be able to pay my bills and, you know, keep a roof over my head and food on the table, you know, for me and my kids? And who would hire me uh, now that I have a a terminal illness um, diagnosis? So, you know, not only was it the stress of, you know, seeing if I was going to be able to save my life and live, but the stress of the long-term, you know, financial impacts uh, of the disease. So what I I learned in, in some of my work in the cancer community is that now, because our treatments, you know, are have gotten so much better and so much more targeted that um, when people hear those words, you know, you have cancer, their first thought isn't necessarily, will I be able to beat it? 
their first thought is, how am I going to be able to pay for it? And according to the American Journal of Managed Care, once someone receives a cancer diagnosis, their risk for bankruptcy increases roughly 2.6 times. And that's both for people who may be uninsured, but also includes those who feel they are fully insured, perhaps through their work, for example. So it seems financial toxicity can impact anyone, not just those without insurance. Correct. And, you know, what we are hoping to do, you know, with this pilot program that we're, um, you know, hoping will be funded is to kind of deal with that issue upstream um, to help a person, you know, examine their finances, take a look at their insurance plans, you know, determine whether or not applying for, you know, Medicaid or Medicare might be the right move trying to figure out what formularies, you know, their, um, you know, drug formularies are on their plans. So start upstream with trying to figure out how they can, you know, ward off uh, some of the financial crises that comes with having a chronic illness. Yeah. And before we go on, I just want to, to ask, you're, you're well now? Uh, the cancer is in remission? Is, is that safe to say? Well, I, I would say, you know, I, I had okay. breast cancer first, and uh, the problem with breast cancer is that it, it's not one of those cancers that, you know, you hit your five-year mark and you're out of the woods. Uh, with breast yeah. cancer, you know, it can come back, you know, anytime. So I still have to be vigilant with that cancer. With the other cancers that I've had, um, uh, there's another cancer that can, can reoccur as well. But I think uh, for the most part, I'm out of the woods. I feel great. I work out, I eat healthy, and I probably have more energy than 90% of my staff. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, I think that's that's such a key point that that once there's a diagnosis, it, it may continue for the long term, thus chronic. So how would a program like this make a difference? For example, to the person who's just been diagnosed with cancer or perhaps diabetes, when this pilot program is up and running, if it is approved, what will that experience be like for that patient? So what we're hoping to do, you know, we, we know that doctors do great work, you know, and that their goal is to, you know, save the patient's life, but they don't always have the necessary tools to, you know, help a person who might find themselves in some sort of financial or emotional stress as a result of the diagnosis. So what we would like to do is uh, have a pilot program where someone who can help them navigate uh, all these financial issues is actually embedded, you know, in the, in the medical team. Uh, to start right from the beginning when the person gets the diagnosis to take a look and see, um, you know, how they can help them navigate all the financial issues that might come with the diagnosis. I'm thinking for someone who may be underinsured or may not have enough, you know, finances to cover this may just say, I'm not going to get these tests right now. I just can't afford it. And, And is that what you're trying to avoid in the doctor's office? Absolutely. Yeah. We, we don't want people to have to choose over their, you know, whether they're going to be able to put food on the table or, you know, take care of their medical, um, you know, uh, exams and labs and, you know, different things like that. And what we find, sadly, is this disproportionately affects, you know, people of color um, who are already, you know, some, some of them, you know, working on the margins anyway. And we also have found that, you know, it's a, it's a big problem in rural Colorado. So um, those are the areas that we really hope to focus on. Well, there's a lot in the 2021 Colorado budget, the 2022 budget, actually. Uh, this program is relatively small, about $300,000 to get this pilot program off the ground. Why do you think this amount of funding will be enough to make a dent in this larger problem of financial toxicity? 
Well, we're hoping that, you know, we will fund this pilot program and that it will be successful. And we want to make sure we work out the bugs, um, you know, with a, a smaller program. And then we think it is scalable to, you know, being a larger program. So we think with uh, uh, hiring one person on my staff and hopefully granting out about $300,000 that, um, you know, we'll be able to, you know, really create a program that's successful and then replicate that um, hopefully throughout the state. You know, it's still not a done deal. Uh, the Joint Budget Committee um, has to still approve it uh, for the fiscal year 2022-23 uh, long bill. And then uh, we hope to start the program then in July of 2022 and start granting out money in the fall of 2022 if it's all approved. How we decide where this program's going to be placed, like like a hospital or a clinic? I mean, that is to say, will it be placed where there is going to be matching funds from a larger hospital, or or perhaps maybe where the most need is 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 seen in areas, let's say, where there is a highly underserved population? Yeah, we want it to uh, to address where there where it is, um, you know, a highly underserved population because that seems to be where the issue occurs the most. Um, we would like to have this person, you know, be embedded in the healthcare system at the point of diagnosis so that, you know, we can start the ball rolling right right away with making sure that they don't end up in financial ruin. So, you know, if that's a clinic, if that's a hospital, um, we will issue an RFP, you know, with some of those parameters, but we do want to really embed it in the healthcare system. Stepping back a bit, um, just the general idea of financial toxicity, do you think the system is broken? The fact that we have so many people who may not have heard this term before, but definitely understand what it feels like to to be with that burden. Um, what are your thoughts on that, especially trying to get this program across the finish line? Well, you know, I think the words financial toxicity sort of sound complex, but, you know, in reality, it's it's probably an experience that most Coloradoans have had either themselves or that they have known someone close to them. Uh, who's experienced, you know, the, the financial stressors of, of a chronic diagnosis. So, you know, I think if I took a survey on my very own staff uh, or people who work at the Capitol or, you know, people listening today, I think a lot of people could tell a story about a time that they dealt, you know, with a medical diagnosis that, uh, you know, r- rippled into other areas of their life and or they had a family member who was really you know, having some financial stressors as a result of their diagnosis, you know, maybe they weren't able to work at the time, you know, maybe the cost of the treatments were expensive, you know, maybe they were worried about whether they're going to make their car payment, um, you know, and be able to have transportation to and from their, their treatments. And, you know, when I was at Susan G. Komen, Colorado, I think we took calls on a daily basis uh, from people that were afraid they weren't going to be able to make their house payment, their car payment, they were going to lose everything. Uh, because they couldn't work and and the cost of their treatment was was an extra burden. So I think this is common, um, and I'm I'm just really happy that we have an opportunity uh, to address this, even if it's in a small way. We're hoping to scale it to a to a larger program. Lieutenant Governor, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I appreciate your uh, your interest in this area. It's really important for people. Lieutenant Governor Diane Primavera. Colorado is hoping to launch a pilot program next year to help people overcome what's called financial toxicity due to chronic illness. Before the break, we talked about a pilot program the state is hoping to launch next year to help people deal with what's known as financial toxicity. That's the crush of medical bills that can go hand in hand with having a chronic illness. There are similar programs already in other states like Michigan. 
That's where Dan Sherman works as a financial navigator. He helps people navigate the medical and insurance world after a chronic diagnosis. His company is called the Navectus Group. Dan, welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much, Nathan. I uh, appreciate the invitation. As we've heard, the pilot program proposed here in Colorado's 2022-2023 state budget aims to stand up a process where patients who might be in danger of falling into financial toxicity get the help they need right at their point of care. Can you give us a brief example of what you do as a financial navigator in Michigan? Yeah. Uh, So financial navigation uh, looks at the patient as a whole. Uh, In many uh, health systems across the United States, financial interventions, what they're doing in those interventions is they're they're treating the one symptom. Um, For example, if the patient needs to go on an expensive chemotherapy treatment, the the treatment model in most hospital systems uh, when it comes to financial toxicity is say, oh, well, I can enroll this patient into a copay assistance program that will help lessen the financial burden for the patient. That's all and well. But financial navigation takes this to another level and says, well, what if this patient needs radiation treatments? What, if, what about their PET scan? Uh, what about the hospitalization that they're going to have? What are we doing to address the financial issues for that? So financial navigation uh, looks at attempting to do insurance optimization. It's moving the patient from being underinsured to being, being more fully insured. And we do those interventions proactively so that those plans are in place before the intervention is made. So it seems you you pretty much have to know a lot about insurance and that financial resource for your clients, but also perhaps a bit of medical knowledge, too, based on their diagnosis? Right. Uh, and that's one of the major gaps in our current healthcare system uh, when addressing financial distress for cancer patients. Uh, there are many programs out there that will address or uh, help deal with some of the financial issues that cancer patients deal with. But there's also, at the same time, a huge lack of knowledge of understanding health insurance and navigating the patients through um, these very, very complicated systems. So, for example, in the Medicare world, uh, it's common uh, for a Medicare beneficiary to have 40, 50 different choices available for them for what they want for their medical coverage. Choosing one uh, plan might cause a $7,000 out-of-pocket responsibility for the patient. Choosing another could uh, end up uh, costing the patient $203. And so having knowledge about this and, and help educate the patients on what all of their options are uh, is critical to be able to make financial navigation work well. Can you give maybe a hypothetical of how being this person, this financial navigator between doctors and insurance companies and their patients, is it a one-size-fits-all, or or does it change based on the diagnosis that the patient has received? Yeah, it's uh, it's very diagnosis-dependent, and so uh, there's not one insurance plan that is right for every single person. So, for example, uh, because we're at the end of the year right now, I just met with a, a newly diagnosed breast cancer patient. Um, young lady. Um, she's actually in her 20s. So she mm-hmm. needs surgery followed by radiation treatments. Uh, the surgeon scheduled uh, her uh, lumpectomy 
for in the third week of December. This lady has a $5,000 deductible with her insurance plan. Well, we know that after your lumpectomy, she's also going to be needing radiation treatments. She needs three or four weeks to heal after the lumpectomy, and then radiation is initiated. So the, here, the financial navigation plan was to have a conversation with the surgeon and saying, is it absolutely necessary to do that surgery the third week of December? Could we do it the first week of January? So now she's only going to hit her deductible once rather than twice. So her out-of-pocket responsibility moved from $10,000 down to $5,000. Once again, I think it's critical uh, that the financial navigator is combining the clinical knowledge of the patient's treatment plan and diagnosis into uh, the financial navigation plan and, and um, meshing it with the patient's insurance. Now, again, I want to be clear what you do may or may not be what ends up happening in Colorado with this financial toxicity program that the lieutenant governor spoke about. They're hoping to stand up uh, later on next year. But it seems that this doctor, insurance agent, patient needs someone uh, in the middle to help raise success rates all around in terms of making people better, right? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and the benefits are, uh, are there's multiple benefits uh, for the provider as well. And I don't want to just focus in on the financial. Uh, there obviously is a financial benefit uh, for the provider. If we can move the, the, the burden of the cost away from the patient to other coverage instruments, it helps that hospital obviously collect the, uh, those funds and not burden the patient with it. But there's a whole other level of benefit to the hospital system, um, and that's probably more of the psychological, practical benefit that this has for, hmm. for the patient population. The number one stressor of oncology patients, uh, research uh, is showing this. Well, some research studies shows that it's in the top three level of distress. But uh, So the top three level of distress uh, issues for cancer patients is financial. Uh, and if we can alleviate that uh, for the patient, the patient is in less stress. There's research out there that shows the higher level of stress that the patient is in, the less effective the treatments that we give the patients are. And so uh, there's actually uh, studies out there that are showing that if we can decrease uh, stress for patients, outcomes improve. So that's one level that it benefits the, the hospital system. The other level is going to be just directly access to care, right? I mean, it's, it's gonna be easier for the patient to access their care that obviously uh, is a huge benefit uh, for the provider. Are there pitfalls that Colorado could avoid when standing up a pilot program like this? What concerns might you have seen in other states or in Michigan when dealing with chronic care and financial toxicity programs? Yeah, there are some concerns that I have that I've, I've seen play out uh, in, in the work that I do here with preparing hospital systems with having a qualified financial navigator within their health system. And that is uh, uh, selecting the right person for the role. Uh, in the healthcare system, there are multiple requirements, certification requirements, educational requirements for basically every single position 
that the healthcare system has if that person is touching the patient, right? But when it mm-hmm. comes to financial advocacy or financial navigation, there are no uh, qualifications in place. There's no educational qualifications, and there are no certification requirements in place as well, no state or uh, federal requirements for the role. And so unfortunately, what happens is uh, health systems hire individuals um, that probably have an expertise in understanding Medicaid and understanding billing and understanding um, some, some basic assistance programs that are out there for patients, but they seldom hire individuals that um, have some of the clinical background uh, to understand what the progression of the disease is going to have and what the treatment uh, uh, plan will be for the patient, as well as having some of the mental health qualifications to deal with a very highly um, uh, difficult and stressful topic uh, to be discussing with patients. And so we hire individuals um, in the role that do not understand, once again, the clinical direction that this is taking uh, and then implementing that into the financial navigation plan. And so my my encouragement for uh, for Colorado as they're looking at this, and by the way, I want to congratulate uh, Colorado and in, in doing this. It's it's a fantastic first step in the, in the right uh, direction here. Um, but encourage that you really look closely at who is functioning in this role, you will have a much higher success rate if this person has some of the the qualifications that I've mentioned, as well as as having some training to be able to do this work and do it well. Dan, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you so much. Dan Sherman is a financial navigator with the Nevectis Group in Michigan. That's one of the states with programs to help address financial toxicity. Colorado is looking to do something similar next year. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. What caused the East Troublesome Fire? More than a year later, we still don't know. When it comes to finding out the cause of major human-caused wildfires, Colorado does worse than any other Western state. You know, you kind of pull up, look at it. If it's not super obvious, then, you know, yeah, I looked at it. But there's fires where investigators I know, nobody ever showed up. I'm Ben Marcus. Read this CPR News investigative report about the cost of unsolved megafires at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel near Glenwood Springs. The crew of the International Space Station received an urgent message last week from NASA's Mission Control. We were recently informed of a satellite breakup and need to have you guys start reviewing the safe haven procedure. Russia had deployed a missile blowing up one of its own satellites, sending thousands of pieces of debris hurtling around the Earth. While none of it hit the ISS, experts believe the incident could be a sign of a much bigger threat, Russia's growing military capabilities in space. Ian Boyd is a professor of aerospace engineering sciences and director of the Center for National Security Initiatives at CU Boulder. Ian, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Russia claims that destroying their own satellite posed no threat to the ISS and that NASA was overreacting. But what evidence do you see that there might have been deeper Russian motives at play here? 
Well, I think that you know Russia has been operating in space, uh, uh, you know, dating back to the Soviet Union uh, longer than anybody. So they fully understand what happens when you uh, destroy a satellite. Uh, it creates a lot of uh, what we call debris, and they have sophisticated tools that could um, predict where a lot of that material would go, and where it would go is uh, where a lot of other spacecraft already operate. So I think it was. Um, Certainly, a, 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 what a provocative uh, step on their part, and there, there could be a number of reasons why, from their perspective, they decided to go ahead with it. Now, there have been other examples of similar incidents. China sent a missile up and destroyed a satellite in 2007. In fact, the space station had to dodge some of that debris earlier this month. Is there a concern that Russia's recent test might be the start of a new dangerous phase here? Well, I think it's like I said, it is definitely uh, provocative. Um, you know, this uh, increased militarization of space, uh, if, if it's something that's happening, it comes at the same time as the access to space and, and the use of space for uh, civilian and commercial purposes is really uh, exploding, expanding. And so these steps are not just affecting the military satellites of other nations, but they're affecting commerce and they're affecting... Um, the ability to predict the weather and, um, you know, communications. Um, so many of us use GPS every single day to drive from one place to another. So all these, um, all these space capabilities and assets um, are put at risk by, by steps like this. And, and, and I think there really is a concern over uh, what it means. And, and those are some real-life consequences here on the ground, right? But wouldn't destroying something like GPS or, heaven forbid, the space station would be horrible for everyone? Meaning, if the Russians hit a key satellite or some such important piece of hardware, wouldn't that also severely impact their interests as well? Well, it could. So I think in a military sense, um, a nation like Russia or maybe China as well, they may assess that um, they're less reliant on space than the US military. And so maybe they're willing to pay the price of space becoming uh, difficult to use for a while um, in return for rapidly winning you know, a major conflict. Uh, and similarly, there could be the perception that the US and the Western allies have more to lose commercially by space getting you know, clogged up and more difficult to use. Um, and then also I think you know, this could be kind of a Cold War sort of tactic of, of, of what you would call mutual uh, deterrence, that Russia or China, in demonstrating their ability to destroy satellites, their goal really is specifically to deter the U.S. from doing the same thing, you know, to Russian or Chinese satellites. Oh. So there's a, right, so there's a lot of, um, it's like a chess game sometimes, right? And um, so difficult to know for sure, but I think there, there are a number of potential explanations. So could we reach essentially a detente, for a lack of a better word, where I'm not going to destroy your satellite, you're not going to destroy mine, but know that I can? Yeah, exactly, right? One, you know, none of these um, world powers wants one of the other world powers to have ascendancy over them, right? They, they're really um, uh, more comfortable, yeah, like you said, with, with a balance where, where, where neither side is going to, to use the, the capabilities they have. But it definitely seems like Russia saying, well, hold on a second, I can I can do this and I am going to do this and claim it's just, you know, testing, you know, their missiles on, on their own satellites. 
Yeah, they can, you know, they can claim that. But I think that, like you said, there, there have been a few of these what we call ASAT tests, but anti-satellite tests. Um, China was about 15 years ago, this Russian one. There was one from India a couple of years ago. And actually, the U.S. did one, you know, about 15 years ago as well. Mm-hmm. What's really key between these different tests is, uh, is, is the, the orbit that the destroyed spacecraft was in. This, this Russian spacecraft and the Chinese spacecraft uh, from 15 years ago, they were relatively high up, you know, above the Earth's surface and, and close to the orbit where the space station orbits and, and where a lot of other um, commercial and civilian spacecraft orbit. The, um, the, the, both the Indian test and the U.S. test were at much lower altitudes where they, they blew something up and then all those pieces um, re-entered the Earth's atmosphere and burned up within a few months. So the, it, it, part, part of the concern uh, internationally is that these pieces of debris that, that Russia and China have created are going to be around for many, many years. I mean, the effect of those tests is, is going to be felt um, just like we've seen with the space station today, and you mentioned in, in the lead that uh, just recently the space station had to avoid one of those Chinese uh, pieces of debris. That's from 15 years ago, right? So, so there's a very big difference um, between the U.S. and Indian tests and the Chinese and Russian tests in terms of the longevity of the effects that have been created. Because essentially, like you're saying, this debris just keeps circling the Earth in the exact same orbit over and over and over again. And and that definitely puts places like the ISS at risk. I, I want to turn to the U.S. Space Force. It was recently created. Uh, right now, it's headquartered in Colorado Springs. What's role, what is its role in all of this? Because I think it does have something uh, of a role here. Oh, absolutely. And it is a little bit confusing. You know, there's both Space Command and Space Force. And they were kind of set up, you know, within a few uh, within a few years of now, and at about the same time. So, so Space Command is tasked with defending U.S. interests in space, both military satellites and civilian satellites, and 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 the space station. And then the Space Force provides the capabilities and the people that Space Command calls on. And so it's like if you uh, if you're going to if you're going to battle uh, in the ocean, you call in the navy. If you're you know if you're going to battle in space, uh, space command will call on space force to help out. Um, you know, for many years the U.S. was very reluctant to say that space was becoming militarized. But standing up space command and space force is really meant to send a strong message to other nations that the U.S. is taking a more proactive approach to space. It considers it what's called a contested domain, which means if there was a full-out war uh, with, a, with another world power, you know, in addition to, 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 to maybe fighting on land and in sea and in the air, uh, there could be fighting in space as well. Um, so this is a, so a certainly much not more conventional warfare, right? I mean, what, what are the weapons here for that? This isn't like on the ground, of course. Right. So these, um, I mean, so the Russian attack, right, they launched the missile from the ground up to space uh, to, to destroy their satellite. Um, there's a treaty called the Outer Space Treaty um, that dates back to 1967 that, uh, that precludes the, the use uh, or the placing of weapons of mass destruction and nuclear weapons in space. And uh, the U.S. and China and Russia are all signatories to that uh, treaty. Um, but it doesn't cover... 
you know, other things. So you could certainly have missiles in space, whether that's where we are today or not, I think is, uh, is unknown in the general public. But I think that's the kind of the direction that things are going. I mean, space is becoming more uh, militarized and, um, and unfortunately, um, and in, yeah, in the U.S., you know, Space Command and Space Force are, are there to protect our interests. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken immediately denounced the Russian access uh, action. Rather, he says this isn't traditional warfare, like like you've mentioned. If somebody decides to attack, how does the U.S. keep that from happening or defend other property up there? Well, I think it's uh, it, it's again, it's it's kind of like in, I mentioned earlier about deterrence. You know, one of the challenges yeah. in, um, in in the military aspect of space. Is it's hard to know what's going on up there, right? It's it's hundreds of miles uh, above the surface of the Earth. Uh, we don't have a lot of uh, video cameras telling us what's going on. Um, and so, if you know, if a GPS satellite goes down, um, what what was the cause of that? Was it a technical malfunction? Was it a some kind of natural phenomenon, what we call space weather, or was it sabotaged by a bad actor? And 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 knowing the answer to that question. Right, could lead to a very tense international situation, including the possibility of war. So we have to know what happened to something like that. And so there's an activity called space domain awareness, which is all about tracking all of the things in space. And, and so part of what Space Command and Space Force are putting a very strong emphasis on is, is increased capability in space domain awareness so that nobody can go and mess with one of the U.S. satellites without us being able to point confidently a finger at them and say, we know that you did this. And then, and then you know, th- then whatever the consequences are, the consequences are. But, but again, the idea is that we're able to say if anything bad goes on in space, who did it, uh, with the idea of uh, deterring them from doing it in the first place. Ian, thanks so much for being here. Fascinating stuff. Thank you. Ian Boyd is a professor of aerospace engineering sciences and director of the Center for National Security Initiatives at CU Boulder. There was a ribbon-cutting and dedication ceremony at one of the state's newest schools last week. It's the first public charter school on an Indian reservation in Colorado, and it blends Ute culture and language within the basic core curriculum. My colleague Avery Lill recently had the chance to talk with Dan Porter, head of the Huyagat Community Academy in Toyak, and with Betty Howe a Ute Mountain Ute tribal member and elder who works the academy incorporating Ute language. Mike, nena nia beri hau. Nipa kanigat toyakaba. I said, "Hello, my name is Betty Hau and I live here in Toyak." And in my native Chickasaw language, Chukma and Chukmashki. Thank you for sharing. You're joining us on a video call from the school. We can hear students in the background. Huyagat Academy has been open for less than a month. Dan, what does it mean for you to open the doors and see the children come in? You know, I was an educator for 30 years and, and retired and went to work in another industry uh, and got a call from some friends down here on the reservation asking if I'd be interested. And for me personally, it is a tremendous, tremendous honor. We have talked a long time with friends down here in the tribe about the possibility of educating (laughs) indigenous children using their culture, their language to help build up their self-esteem and belief in who they are. So that's how I feel about it. I'm a blessed man. There are 31 charter schools on the lands of 22 tribal nations. Betty, what does it mean to you to have the academy open? It's 
of the utmost importance to have our children on a reservation and especially for them to be among their own peers. Many times we have been bused to school. I went to the public school in Cortez and it was a challenge to be native there, to be ridiculed. So with the kids here, with the school starting here, I hope that they learn how to, you know, work with each other, to share, to respect. I hope that this is a seed that will grow and that the other kids who come here will see that, you know, this is a real school. It's not a playground or a babysitting service. It's a place for them to learn, not just their one, two, threes or ABCs, but also their language and their culture. Right now, there are 27 students at the school. It's just kindergarten and first grade right now. Huyagat has woven Ute Mountain Ute culture into the curriculum as well. Betty, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? What's in my heart is teaching the uh, young children our language. We start off with a greeting, you know, Mike, the good one. And that means, hello, my friend. And then next is Nunenia, and they give their name. So we, we throw in culture. Majority is be, begins with language. What's awesome about this getting their attention is the storytelling. They're all cultural stories. You know, they're, they're given from to us when we were young and our parents, our grandparents told us these stories. Culture is very important, and it makes makes you feel youth when you hear your youth stories. You know, that's how I want the kids to feel. I want them to be proud of who they are and to know who they are. I love what you said that culture begins with language. Would you tell me a little bit more about that? Communicating with one another, it's very important. And um, a child has to be taught. A child listens, uses their senses, and, um, you know, like a grandma sometimes doesn't have to say anything. They just have to look or they just have to use their body, whatever, and that message is, you know, the child will see that. And a lot of times, you know, just hugging means that you care. And we even go to having baby songs for each child and each child has their own youth name and that's given with love. And as they learn love in the beginning of their little life, they will hopefully share that as they're growing up. And so that's where it's important. And Dan, I understand that you have been learning some nuances in the language as well, uh, but that that came into play in, in a recent conversation. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I can't even remember what the word was, and I wouldn't want to repeat it because <laughs> I thought I was using a word appropriately and uh, came in and said something. And Betty said, oh, you don't ever, ever want to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, great. The two words that have stuck with me, one of them is off limits. So 
Um, and I was told it meant something else. And I don't know if somebody was setting me up or I misunderstood or I used the wrong uh, diction in that deal. But uh, anyway, yeah, I, I and I'm learning a lot of a lot of good stuff. Dan, how have you worked with other charter schools and tribal nations to shape Cuyacat Academy? You know, we're part of a network. It's called uh, NACA. It's uh, the Native American Charter Academies, predominantly in New Mexico. And so about once a week, I'm on with a group of charters that are indigenous charters. Their students are indigenous. We work with them. They have quite a long experience with educating indigenous children. And we work on things that's called, uh, well, such like data. One of the books that we're reading is called Street Data. And it's how do we show that our kids are getting the things they're going to need in life when it doesn't match up to this, everybody has to be at a certain level on a standardized test at the same time. I think there's an argument to be made that no matter how how you do it, these standardized tests do alienate certain students, leave certain students out because of their upbringing. And street data is giving us other ways to measure that hopefully we can use to prove to different entities that, you know what, we are providing a good education and it's going to be just as strong as an education when these kids are able to come out. They will be able to get post-secondary school and they will be able to land jobs if they decide to go that route rather than post-secondary based on a strength in the belief of who they are, their culture is strong, and we are teaching the things they need to know for those other things. But sometimes that's not going to show up on a standardized test where it might be able to in other ways of measuring. Tell me a little bit more about those pieces of curriculum that might not make it onto a standardized test. We heard from Betty about how language is being incorporated. What are some other examples of ways that Ute Mountain Ute culture is part of the curriculum at Huyagat Academy? I've always told parents when I'm trying to argue on the importance of math, uh, if you ask a kid to calculate the volume of the cylinder, a lot of kids could care less. But if you ask a a kid that's born on a farm, tell me how much corn is going to go into that silo, all of a sudden a volume of a cylinder matters. So when we're looking at building and beating bolo tie or, or doing any beating at all, that's mathematical. Uh, the, where a bead fits in a design. I uh, asked a lady named Beverly Lehigh Yazi to uh, create a bolo tie for me uh, that represents our symbol for Cuyagat School. And you would be amazed at the representation that she did. And that was all by beading. And that is math work. That's laying out shapes and sizes and counting and all of those things. So by encouraging those kind of things does not mean we're not encouraging learning of math. We're just doing it through stuff that interests kids. It's keeping kids attracted to the lesson we're teaching that day. And any school is going to try to do those things. We do a ton of manipulatives in our math, which indigenous kids, uh, with the research shows, when they are able to handle their math by hand, they come quite a ways. Uh, EL is our... our uh, other curriculum, it's expeditionary learning. A project might take two weeks sometimes in a regular curriculum. EL's projects take eight weeks. That's how in-depth we go. If it's about butterflies, it's not just about, hey, they you know, they have a, a chrysalis and then they're born. It's just not that fast. It's, it's pretty in-depth learning. Kids have a real chance to read, explore, and it gives them time 
sometimes you go a little slower to get ahead faster. And that's our point is let's build that strong base and they're going to be fine. You have two teachers at the school. One of them is a former Denver Public Schools instructor who spent part of his youth in the Navajo Nation. Betty, tell me more about that relationship between the school, its educators, and the members of the Ute Mountain Ute tribe. We're in the eyes of the community. We're looked at every day, and we don't hold our breath, but we just have to work every day and do the best we can here and work with the parents. Dan, what does that mean for you to be in the eyes of the community that way? It's two sides to it, but it all boils down to trust. They're trusting us with their most important thing in their lives, um, their children. And uh, where I see a real connection between Betty and Ephraim, our our cultural language teachers, who are youth members, and and then we've got uh, Jennifer and Eddie, who are classroom teachers, and myself, it all boils down to trust. And so when some of these parents have a long relationship with Betty and they see Betty and I treating each other with respect and caring, we've been friends for a while, that automatically kind of bridges a gap there. All of a sudden that parent's thinking, okay, if Betty is likes this person and is trusting of this person, I feel more confident in trusting this person. And so when you say all eyes on the community on me, I I feel like a lot of those bridges have already been built throughout the years. Uh, Betty actually went to school a long time ago with one of my cousins and they are good friends. And and so a lot of those bridges, now we are trying to uh, create bridges with the younger generation that is not familiar with us. And so I'm comfortable with all eyes because uh, we're more of, it's not like I'm an individual. We are a group of really good people trying to do good things. And we are using every opportunity to work with the community, bring them in, and then make them feel like they're part of it. And pretty soon, it isn't like you're under a microscope by yourself. It's all of us together. And that is sure easier to bear than everything on one person's shoulders. It is interesting that this academy is opening during a time when conversations about education are really being dominated by the idea of critical race theory. And it seems like this is really central to what you're doing, isn't it? You know, it truly is. And and uh, I guess what frustrates me, uh, what's awfully hard, is when anybody hears anything that might not go along with their opinion, they're able to brand it with some basically words that critical race theory, thinking it is a curriculum, it is a belief. But you know what? History was kind of hard and history wasn't always good. And, you know, boarding schools weren't always voluntary. They are now, but they weren't. And they were made to not be allowed to speak their their language and not their culture and basically to assimilate. And so that's what is being branded sometimes as critical race theory. There are some bad things that happen to good people. And it doesn't mean that the present generations are that way, but we cannot, I'm a history, uh, my background's in history. And I really believe the old adage, you know what, if you don't uh, study history, you're doomed to repeat it. Well, I went to boarding school in Anadarka, Oklahoma, because I volunteered to go. I wanted to leave the reservation. It was another lifestyle, but it was awesome. But listening to my dad, who got taken from the uh, Southern Ute Reservation, 
put on a vehicle and it was a military type of school. So that, that part is sad. And my mother who went to the boarding school here on the reservation told a few stories about that. There weren't um, nightmare stories, but it was that type of where they literally took her also. And But she ended up running away. So she has a fourth grade level education. I just want to thank you both so much for joining me and for sharing about the school. We sure appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and let people know who we are and what we're about. Thank you. And thank you, Betty. Yeah. Betty Howe is a Ute Mountain Ute tribal member and elder. She works at Huyagat Community Academy, incorporating Ute language into students' formal education. Dan Porter is head of the new charter school on the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation in Toyak. They spoke with Avery Lill in September. The school was dedicated last week. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. We love to hear from you on Twitter. We're at Colorado Matters, and I'm at Heffel N. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.